Welcome to the Tell Us Something podcast. I'm Mark Moss. We are currently looking for storytellers for the next Tell Us Something storytelling event. The theme is The First Time. If you'd like to pitch your story for consideration, please call 406-203-4683. You have three minutes to leave your pitch. The pitch deadline is February 20th. I look forward to hearing from you. This week on the podcast. Do you love your mailman? Do you love the guy who changes the oil in your car? The fellow you hire to fix the dishwasher when it breaks? The first frog I ever met was at Park Lake on a camping trip with my parents when I was 10 years old. My dad had scooped it out of the water and placed it in my little cupped hands. And then and there, I fell in love. I spent the next few days getting my application together. And I get the application in, and then I keep calling. Is it accepted? Is it accepted? You know when you're in grade school or middle school and high school and you lean back in your chair, braced against the desk? That's sometimes how Tell Us Something feels, like we're just about to fall over. Four storytellers share their true personal story on the theme, It's the Little Things. Their stories were recorded live, in person, in front of a sold-out crowd on December 15, 2022, at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Our first story comes to us from Ian Kessler. Ian wrestles with himself and his relationship to his father, whom he barely knows. Ian calls his story, Shaken Ground. Thanks for listening. One of my earliest memories is when the dishwasher broke, and the guy my mom hired to come fix it. This big, burly guy comes to the door. Uh, he's got a t-shirt, work jeans, he smells like cigarettes and coffee. He lays out his wrenches and he gets started. I'm like three or four and I'm standing in the kitchen doorway and I'm just transfixed. I mean, I cannot peel myself away. When I was a kid, I always liked watching men work. My parents, um, they were never together. Uh, They both wanted a kid. They each needed the other to do it. But I was raised by my mother on the East Coast entirely. Uh, That was always the deal. So the memories that I have of my father are really scant, but really deeply imprinted. Um, When I was really little, he'd send me postcards from the Great Plains, the Black Hills, you know, this part of the world. He's seen and hiked and camped the backcountry more than maybe I ever will. I have them, those postcards, in an old shoebox. And they're dull things, pretty tame. Stuff like, um, hi Ian, how are you? Or, uh, happy birthday. Or, tell your mother I said hello. And all of them are signed the same. Sincerely, your father. (laughs) Wasn't until years later that I realized that I've never not known how to spell that word. Sincerely, it was like it got imprinted in the back of my mind. When I was ten... I spoke to him on the phone for the first time, and that was my choice. Uh, My mom made it really clear that I always could. It just had to be something that I wanted. And it's going to sound funny, but turning 10 really sort of spun me for a loop. Um, I didn't didn't feel like a little kid anymore, you know? I felt like a kid, but it did feel like some part of my childhood had shifted. It wasn't something I could hide behind, you know? 
Uh, I had to talk to this man. I had to handle this thing. So my mom calls him, sets it up. Uh, I'm sitting in the dining room, and the light's coming in from the kitchen, and I got the phone pressed up to my ear. And my mom told me years later that it was really, really, really clear to her that I was really, really, really nervous. But the truth is, I don't remember any of it. I couldn't tell you what was said, what we talked about. What I do remember is hearing his voice on the other end of the line for the very first time. I've always loved my father's voice. It sounds carved, you know, cured. I've always coveted his voice. I've always wished it was mine. When I was uh, 14, I went out to spend time with him alone for the first time. Uh, That was his idea. He was remodeling a house out in Shadner, Nebraska. Uh, He said I could go up there, work for him. I'd learn a few skills. He'd pay me, be a good deal all around. My mom was really anxious, of course. I mean, I'd never spent time with him alone before. But I jumped at the chance, you know. I I mean, I was 14 years old. Even then, I didn't think something was going to shift between us or change. But what you have to understand is that my father comes from a farm in rural Wisconsin, right? He comes from a time and a place where if you work like a man, you get treated like one. And this just felt like my shot, a chance to stand alongside him. It was summertime, and we worked outside. And my father works without a shirt on. And he is so brutally thin. I mean, this man does not eat. He's so skinny, there's something almost feral. It feels diseased to look at him, you know? I remember looking at him, and I felt like I could see every line of bone, every vein, every ligament. Like, I could see the insides churning in his belly, you know? That kind of skinny. I'm standing there, and I'm watching him work in the yard. You know, he's tearing out drywall or puttering with the car. And I can see the line of his back, where he'd broken it when he was 15 and fell out of a hayloft. Or his sternum that was chipped years and years ago, or the veins that just poured down his forearms. It was the first time I'd ever seen his body up close. Now, the truth is, I was not very good at the work that he gave me. I did not take to it. No, not at all. Uh, My father has a temper, and he's not a man with patience for children. So, mostly I just learned to keep quiet. Two weeks came, and two weeks went. There was no big moment between us. When it was over, he drove me to the airport, he shook my hand, and I went home. I didn't know him any better. We hadn't talked much, i just sort of seen him up close. Now, it's funny to me, at least, because uh, I've told that story to people, lots of people, people that I know and love, and people that I don't know as well. And without a shadow of a doubt, They always say some version of the same thing. Well, he's your dad, and he loves you, and I'm sure that you love him. Do you love your mailman? (laughs) Do you love the guy who changes the oil in your car? The fellow you hire to fix the dishwasher when it breaks? You don't love men that you don't know. I wish there was more that I could say uh, about it. I wish there was some sort of finality I could put to it. But the truth is, as I stand here on this stage today, I'm 34, and I've met that man face-to-face maybe 20 times. 
And there's far too much there and just not enough all at once. And if I'm honest, I don't really know what to make of all that. We still talk. And we're still not close. And that's probably not going to change. But the older I get, the deeper those similarities seem to run. Ain't that growing up for you. We're both reserved men. And uh, we both work really hard. And we both got more pride than we know what to do with. And looking back, to borrow a phrase, it really is. It, it is those little things, those bits and pieces that you don't realize that you don't know. You know, the sound of your father's voice, or the cursive of his handwriting, or the way that his body catches sunlight and shadow when he works in the yard. And the thing that I'm starting to realize now that I didn't know when I was little with the postcards or or 10 on the phone or 14 out in Shadron, Nebraska is that slowly you turn into a man that you don't know. And that is really scary. That feels like I'm walking on shaken ground because still the same question rattles in my head. How do you love a man that you don't know? And the answer is, is, I'm not sure. Thanks, Ian. Ian Miles Kessler is a playwright, theater artist, and storyteller, originally hailing from the East Coast. A recent transplant to Montana, Ian relocated to Missoula to enroll in a Wild to Ride Academy, a Mustang Ranch and Equine program, where he learned the process of gentling wild horses. He's proud to be a level six graduate of that program and thrilled to be sharing his story with you. Currently, Ian is working on a debut novel. Our next storyteller is Hannah Harvey. Hannah finds herself with more than she bargained for when she moves in with her then-boyfriend and the rest of his family ends up moving in with them. A big storm washes an injured frog into the yard and everything begins to change. Hannah calls her story frog rescue thanks for listening the first frog i ever met was at park lake on a camping trip with my parents when i was 10 years old my dad had scooped it out of the water and placed it in my little cupped hands and then and there i fell in love i loved its smooth soft skin I loved its tiny hands with fingers that looked just like mine. And I loved that when you looked at its chest, its thin, white, papery skin showed the tiny, rapidly beating heart inside. It was like a little hummingbird heart. I remember holding that frog and thinking about how nice it felt to take care of it, to hold it to care about it. I let the frog go and watched it swim away. And while I don't condone handling frogs because it is not particularly safe for the frog or the human, I will say that that experience stuck with me for a very long time. I remembered that frog again many years later in 2019 when I was living in Virginia. The house that I lived in was right by a little saltwater inlet, and there were lots of water reeds and grass that frogs liked to hide in. 
And when I was falling asleep at night, I would hear the chorus of frogs singing. Some people who I met in Virginia said that they found this sound annoying, but I loved it. To me, it was like white noise, except it was frog noise. (laughs) And hearing all those little voices singing often made me feel less lonely as I was falling asleep. And loneliness was a feeling that I had a lot when I was living in Virginia. I lived in Montana my whole life until moving there. And I, like many others, moved across the country with no rhyme or reason except for the fact that I was in love with a boy. I had met this boy in Missoula at college, and when he returned to live back in his home state of Virginia, I went with him. I was so excited because he had this little quaint house there. I was going to move in. We had it all planned out. We were going to have our lives together. We were going to do all those fun things that couples do when they first move in together. We were going to build our relationship. We were going to get married and have kids. It was all planned out. It was perfect. And then his family decided to move in. His parents and his brother, myself and my boyfriend, were all packed into this tiny house. And I grew up with a very demure, quiet family. We do not talk about our problems because we were all raised Catholic. So (laughs) no problems here, no problems here. But my boyfriend's family, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately in some cases, was not this way. They were loud and rowdy and rambunctious. They took up a lot of space. They had fights at the dinner table, and I just could do nothing but sit there and watch. And I wanted to be the one calm presence in their lives. I dedicated myself to being the best girlfriend possible, to make them proud that their son had a partner like me. I was quiet. I didn't argue. My boyfriend's mom even called me Mr. Rogers because I was so goddamn agreeable. But the thing about being agreeable all the time is that you lose yourself. And I started to feel parts of myself slipping away. I stopped doing the things that I loved. I didn't sing as loudly. I didn't paint as large. I didn't talk as much. And I slept all the time. When I wasn't at work, when I was at home, the only things I wanted to wear were comfortable clothes. And the only comfortable clothes at my disposal were my boyfriend's old pajamas from seventh grade. I would put them on the sad, plaid, ratty, tattered pants and a shirt from an event that he participated in long before I came into the picture. And I would look in the mirror and see myself dressed as somebody else. My depression got worse and worse. And with it, so did the weather. The spring in Virginia is pretty tough. It rains a lot. It's always dreary. And one night in particular, it poured. It was windy, it was rainy, there was thunder, lightning, it was like a big storm from a movie. And in the morning, while my boyfriend and I were sleeping in bed, his mother busts into our bedroom, because that's what happens when you live with your boyfriend's family, Um, and she says, there is the biggest frog I've ever seen in our yard, and I don't know what to do about it. That was the fastest I have ever gotten out of bed in my entire life. I put on my boyfriend's Crocs, because, of course, and I ran outside, and I saw this giant frog by our dumpster. 
It was also the biggest frog I had ever seen, about as large as my hand. And I could tell immediately that it had a hurt leg and that it was missing one of its eyes. Perhaps it got caught up in the storm or got in a fight with a wayward cat. But the moment I saw that frog, something in my brain woke up. And that frog became my mission. I couldn't care for myself. Some nights I couldn't brush my teeth because I was so sad, but God damn it, this frog was worth saving. <laughs> when I would go to work in the day, and when my boyfriend had the days off, he would be home. And the frog didn't move. It was still alive. I could tell by that same tiny beating heart in its chest. But it, it seemed just incapable of moving. It would look around with its eyes. It would shift slightly, but it didn't move. So when, it was, when I was away at work, I would make my boyfriend water the frogs because I know that frogs need water. It's kind of like oxygen to them in a way. It's where they get all their nutrients. They breathe through their skin, and their skin needs to stay moist. So every day I made my boyfriend water the frog, I would text him and say, okay, did you water the frog? And he'd say, yes. But after a few days of this, I tried feeding the frog, I tried doing everything, and it wouldn't move. It was still alive, it was still breathing, still looking around, but it wouldn't eat, wouldn't move, wouldn't do anything. And finally, when I got home from work one day and I saw it sitting there, sadly, I went inside. I got a plastic salad container. I poked holes in it. I put a little bit of water in the bottom. I put the frog in there, closed the lid. I called a wildlife rehabilitator and said, I have a frog. I'm bringing it to you. She said, well, we don't usually take frogs, but fine. And then I set off on my journey. The wildlife rehabilitator's place was in Chesapeake, which was about 45 minutes away from um, where I lived. And it was another rainy night. It was stormy, it was pouring, it was thundering, it was lightning, and I am not a good driver. <laughs> but I put that frog in its little box in my passenger seat, I buckled it in as tight as I could, and then I just drove. And I was driving like a maniac. It was insane. I felt like I was in Fast and Furious. I've never driven that fast. People were honking. I was doing stupid things, probably. I was like, I, don't honk at me right now. This is an ambulance. There's a baby in here. I drove, I drove. I finally made it to the wildlife rehabilitator's place. I unclipped the seatbelt. I picked up the box. I brought it into her. I said, here, here's this frog. He has a hurt eye. He has a broken leg. I named him Uno because he only has one eye. And I gave it to her. And she went, okay. And then I got in my car and I left. I asked her to text me to tell me what became of the frog, whether good or bad, but I never heard back from her. It's possible that Uno just passed away. It's also possible that the rehabilitator gave him to one of her other creatures as food, which I guess either way, somebody benefited from that, so. But... I moved away from Virginia shortly after that. I came back home. I had friends again. I had family again. I felt whole again. I was sad to end that relationship, but I was withering away in it.
I like to think that Uno is out there. I like to think that he's had lots of frog babies with lots of frog ladies. <laughs> and I like to think that he's happy now and that he's better now because I am. Thanks, Hannah. Hannah Harvey is an artist and person living in Missoula, Montana. Originally from Helena, Hannah is a University of Montana graduate. If you've ever visited the Missoula Art Museum, you may recognize her as the face behind the front desk. When she's not at work, she can be found painting, drinking hot cocoa at break, and looking for creepy crawlies. In our next story, Lori Chase wins the housing lottery when she is selected as someone who can place an offer on a house. Now she has to navigate all of the twists and turns involving financing a house in Missoula, Montana. Lori calls her story Adventures in Home Buying. Thanks for listening. In December of 2015, I moved out of the home that I owned with my husband and into the Gold Dust Apartments, a low-income housing unit on Missoula's north side. The first night that I spent in that apartment, I had a mattress on the floor, and it echoed. It was so empty. It was the first time in over 20 years that I'd actually lived alone. I fell asleep that night to the sound of the train, rumbling, clanking, whining, and the sound of people honking their horns in the Orange Street underpass. Please don't do this. People live there. In the middle of the night, I woke up to the sound of a huge boom that rattled the entire building that I later found out was the coupling of the trains, and I wondered how I would ever get used to that sound, but I did get used to it. I also got used to the thin black layer of coal dust that settled on everything, the north side spice. (laughs) Then later, my kids came to stay, we borrowed more furniture, we settled in. When the kids were with me, The place was crowded. It was a very small apartment. But when they went to their dad's, I was lonely. I really wanted to have a pet, but there were all these rules there. No incense, no candles, no smoking, no noise after 10 p.m., no pets, no nails in the wall. So I got lots of plants, and I named them all. Always knowing that eventually I was going to buy my own house as soon as the divorce was final. But when the divorce was final in August of 2016, I went to a lender who told me that I couldn't buy a house because my debt-to-income ratio due to my student loan, that didn't work out. And also, I didn't have the longevity of employment because before this time, I had been a part-time yoga teacher and a full-time stay-at-home mom. So that didn't really count. So I went home, disappointed, visualizing a bigger apartment where I could get a cat. And three years went by. The kids kept getting bigger, and the apartment kept getting smaller. <laughs> and then one day I went into work, to the office where I sh- that I share with my boss, Molly. And Molly was sitting at her desk working. And I sat down, and I started looking through some mail, and out fell this flyer. 
And it was all about this affordable housing that was going up, brand new townhomes. And it was everything that we wanted. It was two bedrooms, two baths, a garage close to downtown, our own laundry. I could get a pet. I was super excited. It was perfect for me, and I was perfect for it. And the application deadline was in two days. And I had to get pre-qualified for a loan. I had to get all these little things together. And I looked at Molly, and I said, there's no way I can do this in two days. I have all this work to do. And she said, no, you have to do this. Forget about the work. I know a lender, and she starts like writing down names and like all this stuff, getting to work. Okay, fine. So I do it. <clears throat> I spend the next few days getting my application together. And I get the application in, and then I keep calling. Is it accepted? Is it accepted? And finally, it, it's accepted. Okay. And then they say, but, you know, actually, out of all the people who pre-qualified and got accepted, it's a lottery. And so we're basically going to pick names out of a hat to see who gets to buy one of these. Seven lucky people get to buy one. And so I waited. I had to wait like two weeks. It felt like a really long time. And then I got the call. I won the lottery. I was able to buy this place. Yes! But wait, this was only the beginning. I was able to, I had the opportunity to buy this place for $100,000 less than what it was worth. Amazing. And so I started jumping through all the hoops. Like I had to take some classes and go to a lawyer and blah, 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 blah. And I'm doing all the things. And then my lender calls me one day and she says, well, you know, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but we just found out, you know, we figured out the HOA fees and you just don't have a big enough of a down payment. And I had already tapped out all my resources, my mom, my dad, my friends, like everybody. And I said, well, how much is it? Maybe I can still come up with it. And she said, $10,000. And it was like $10,000. <laughs> like, where am I going to come up with $10,000? I don't know. But as I was thinking about it, true story. <laughs> I went to the mailbox, and I got a check in the mail from my dad for $10,000. And he knew what I was going through, but he didn't know this particular thing. And he said, I just had a feeling that you might need some more money for, you know, closing costs and moving and that sort of thing. And I was like, whew, I'm back in the games. I called the lender and I said, I got the $10,000. She's like, a little skeptical. Like, <laughs> where did you come up with $10,000? <laughs> no, 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 seriously, my dad gave it to me and she said, okay, but still, you cannot spend any money. Your debt can't go up. Your savings can't go down. You can't spend any money at all for the next few months. This was in January of 2019. And so I was like, fine, I'm just going to work as much as possible and not spend any money. So I'm doing it. I'm doing all the things. And then she calls and she says, you know what, I'm sorry. I just, they just figured out the taxes and you actually just don't make enough money. And I was like, I'm working as much as I can. I don't know what I can do. And, and I was distraught. I had already done all the little things. And so... I went into the office to work that day, and my boss, Molly, was there. She said, hey, how you doing? And I said, <laughs> you know, when somebody asks you how you're doing, I just broke down. And I explained the whole thing to her. And she said, well, would it make a difference if I gave you a raise? And I said, 
probably, I don't know. And she said, how much? So I called the lender, found out, and she said, I'm so sorry, I should have given you a raise years ago. I've been meaning to do it. I'm just going to give you a raise for that amount, and then you can buy the place. And so she did. And so I was back in the running for the place. And I was holding my breath, just waiting for the day that I could sign the papers and just waiting for something else to go wrong. And then finally, the day came and I signed the papers and I moved into my place. Soon after, I got a cat. That was great. And soon after, another one of the places where I worked, the yoga fitness center, closed. And I was sad, mostly because that's where I practiced. Uh, And then more time went by and I found out a couple years later, Katie, who owned the Yoga Fitness Center, passed away. She had cancer. And it wasn't until after that that I found out that they knew what I was going through to get my place. And they waited to close their business until I signed the papers on my home. (laughs) So this morning I woke up in my home, greeted by my cats. Um, feeling oh so grateful for my home and all the little things that came together so that I could buy my place. But also, and most especially, so thankful for my friends and my family and the community that believed in me and helped me to buy my home. So thank you. Thank you, Missoula. Thanks, Lori. Lori Chase has two almost adult children, two cats, and two jobs. She teaches yoga and works for Gatherboard, a.k.a. MissoulaEvents.net, the best community events calendar in Missoula, and also a longtime sponsor of Tell Us Something. In her free time, she likes to do all the outdoor things and dance Argentine tango. I shared a story next. I am the executive director of Tell Us Something, a 501c3 organization and the podcast that you're currently listening to. I call my story Journey. Thanks for listening. I'm going to tell you a story tonight about my journey with Tell Us Something. And it's more than that. It's also a story about gratitude and joy and depression and teamwork and beauty and community. I was sitting in the dark at the top hat, listening to a woman on the stage tell the story of when she was a little girl going with her mom to Belt, Montana, and she wasn't allowed to come into the house because her mom and her grandmother were going up to Belt to, and she didn't know this yet, brush her great-grandmother's hair. And her great-grandmother lived in a, basically a, a, a shack. And one afternoon, she had to go into the shack for whatever reason. And now she learns why her mom and grandmother are there. Because her great-grandmother Anna's hair is so long that it pools on the floor while they, they're brushing her hair. And it's white. And it's August, 
which is important because the shack is occupied by a, a hive of honeybees. And there are so many of them that the walls bleed honey in the heat. And she's describing all of this, and I'm looking around the room, and everyone is transfixed. And she did such a beautiful job of honoring her ancestors and the care that four generations of women were taking care of one another. And I felt so honored to be in that room with some of you who were there, I'm sure. And that she was, her voice was shaking and she was there to honor her family. Later, I'm sitting in that same dark room at the top hat, listening to a member of the Crow tribe describe leaving the reservation and what a rift that drew between him and his father. And he would go back to visit occasionally, but never leave, never come back, you know, for good, until his father got sick. And he moved back for two years and took care of his dad. After his dad passed, one of his dad's friends said, your dad wanted me to give you this war bonnet, which is one of the highest honors to bestow on a son. And I was, again, humbled and honored to be learning about this part of the culture. And I was just floored. I'm telling you all of this to show that I fell in love with the stories and the storytellers. And I'm sitting in this dark room and I'm listening to a woman share her story about being sexually assaulted in the United States Marine Corps and surviving that. And now she's an attorney in town and she provides justice for survivors. And a woman that I don't know is standing out on the sidewalk, another, another tell us something. And the show was sold out, and she asks, do you have any tickets? I said, I, I don't have any extra tickets. And she handed me two envelopes and said, give one of these to Victoria, the storyteller from the Marine Corps. And I said, I will. And the other one was addressed to me. It was 7 o'clock, so I had to come in and start working. She ended up somehow getting a ticket uh, and was there, but... Um, after I introduce the first storyteller, I go backstage and I start crying reading this letter because the letter said that she had been so depressed for years that every time she went over the, Clark, uh, over the bridge, she wanted to jerk the wheel into the Clark Fork. And she said when she heard Victoria's story about surviving that in the Marine Corps, she went home and wrote in her journal and sobbed and had an emergency appointment with her psychologist the next day and she says that Tell Us Something saved her life. And she gave me permission to tell you that. When I first started Tell Us Something, I had a job at a bank. And when I worked at the bank, every minute I was spending there, I was thinking about how I could make Tell Us Something better. And I got my first smartphone because I didn't want to use bank equipment to do Tell Us Something work when I was on my breaks. So I'm like doing, like updating the website on this little Android phone. And I've struggled with depression my entire life. 
so much to the point that I have a lot of coping strategies and I know when I can see when an episode is coming and I can prepare for it and maybe shorten the duration of it. In 2015, I missed all the cues and I felt like I got hit by a freight train with depression. I couldn't get out of bed. I was just feeling so sad. And I'm standing at the kitchen, in the kitchen at the stove with Joyce behind me, just bracing myself on the stove, sobbing. I couldn't stop crying. And she was just, she didn't say it's okay. She didn't tell me to stop. And that night in the dark in bed, she said, what would make you happy? And I said, doing tell us something full-time, because it is a full-time job. And she said, then you should do that. And I said, what if it fails? And she said, what if it succeeds? And it was that little way to think about it that gave me the courage to quit my job. And I quit my job, and I've been doing tell us something full-time ever since. And sometimes we hear stories like, I don't know if anybody was in this room when Mike Colucci had told the story about sucking the crown up from his tooth up into his sinus cavity. It was a comedy. I mean, oh my gosh. Or, or the guy who told the story uh, about being the person who has to quarantine the losers from the amazing race. Or the woman who just ran out of gas at Costco and how the community came together to help her. And you've been with me on this journey the entire time. You, thank you, you have told your stories. You have come to support the storytellers. And for that, I am so grateful and full of joy. Tell us something. The entire thing is an act of trust. I trust that when I put out the call for stories, storytellers are going to show up. I trust that when I put tickets on sale, y'all are going to buy tickets, and you're trusting me to provide you with entertainment, sadness, like ugly crying, and then huge laughter. You are trusting the storytellers to share of themselves. Most of you know I don't introduce the storytellers ahead of time because I want you to come together as a community and support one another as a community. You know when you're in grade school or middle school and high school and you lean back in your chair, braced against the desk? That's sometimes how tell us something feels, like we're just about to fall over. And you, and you come and you support each other and I'm just so grateful to you for that. It may seem like a little thing, but it to me is a big thing. And the biggest part of the Tell Us Something journey recently is that we became a nonprofit. And that is a big thing. I built out a board, I wrote the bylaws, I got an attorney and he filed the paperwork in August of, of 2021, and we just got our nonprofit status in July of this year. 
I'm Mark Moss, Executive Director of Tell Us Something, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I live on Missoula's historic north side with my wife, Joyce Gibbs, and our perpetual kitten, Ziggy. Thank you to our stewardship sponsor, Blackfoot Communications. Learn more at blackfoot.com. Thanks to our storyteller sponsor, Biga Pizza. You can find them and place an order at bigapizza.com. And thanks to our accessibility sponsor, Grizzly Grocery. Learn more at grizzlygrocery.com. Thank you to our media sponsors, MissoulaEvents.net, Missoula Broadcasting Company, and Gecko Designs. Thanks as well to our in-kind sponsors, Joys of Tile and Float Missoula. Remember that the next Tell Us Something event is March 30th at the Denison Theater. You can learn more about how to pitch your story on the theme the first time and get your tickets at tellussomething.org.